Toddler Nursery Children's Church, you're dismissed at this time. Those who will be remaining in the sanctuary, if you would, turn to Psalm chapter 29. Psalm chapter 29. As we continue our series together, Songs for Our Savior. Psalm chapter 29. Beginning in verse 1, a psalm of David. Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in holy array. The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord hews out flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer to calve, strips the forest bare. And in his temple, everything says glory. The Lord sat as king at the flood. Yes, the Lord sits as king forever. The Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for its truth. Thank you for the power of it to, by your grace and for your glory, transform us into the image of Christ. Thank you for the glory of your son, Jesus. His majesty unparalleled in all of existence. Father, this morning, may we walk away with an exalted view of Christ. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. So this morning. I have a confession to make. I'm not sure I've ever actually publicly said this from a pulpit in a preaching context, but confession is good for the soul. This morning, I am ill prepared to preach this sermon. Now, some of you are already wanting to call for my job. Not because I didn't put in prep time, but because there aren't the right words to use. To preach this sermon today. Amanda and I were talking the other day about how quickly the time has gone by. A good friend of ours sent us a picture. She was digging through some old papers of hers. And she sent us a picture that she had snapped while we were all in college. Over at my parents' house. When they uh, still had a swimming pool. And we were all enjoying the summer together. Before going back to our various colleges. And. Uh, uh, we showed it to our kids and they're like, whoa, y'all were young, you know, and so it's like, yeah, you know, um, like, wow. And I won't go into the fact that my kids hurt my feelings about how skinny they thought I looked back in the picture. We won't, we won't get into that. Um, but time just presses fast. It moves very quickly. And I was having a conversation with somebody the other day and they said, hey, you know, talk to me about your seminary days and This next May, within just a few months, it'll be 15 years since I graduated with my Ph.D. Time just moves. And in all of that time of study and ministry for for more than half of my life now. I have been committed to a deep dive in the study of the scripture And when I came to Psalm 29 this week in preparation for this sermon, I knew that it was going to be a total bust. Not because God hasn't gifted me to be able to be a a preacher of his word. But because the sole topic of the sermon today from Psalm 29 is that Jesus is the glory of God. And I'm just apologizing before we start. 
I do not have the right access to the right kind of language to convey to you how much Jesus is the glory of God. And it's okay because you don't have the right access to the right language to process that Jesus is the glory of God. So we will all just kind of stumble through this together today the best that we can. Because he is the exalted one. The Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the one that all of creation and existence is actually about. And we're going to do the best we can in our feeble, limited, small human minds to sort of maybe grasp a little bit of maybe some some flex off of the edge of the, 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 the magnificent majesty of that topic today. We're going to try the best we can. We will come very short today. So I just am offering an apology ahead of time that we're just not going to get there. But we're going to do the best we can. So take a look in the first two verses. David cries out. He says, ascribe to the Lord. Now, it's kind of a weird way to start a psalm. The, the word ascribe can mean to give. So we're giving something to the Lord here. But it can also, it's a very unusual way in the Hebrew language, but it can also mean to praise. When combined with both of its meanings, it can mean to give praise to someone. So let's translate it that way just for a second. Give praise to the Lord O sons of the mighty. Give praise to the Lord. Glory and strength. Give praise to the Lord. The glory that is due his name. Now, what's what's really intriguing to me about. That phrase, the, the glory due to his name. It's just another way to translate it. The majesty of the holiness of his name. Already things that we don't understand. Give to me a functional, full, working definition that doesn't exclude anything of both the majesty and the holiness of God. I'm already grasping at the air. I could fill the sky with words. As the song says, I could if all the ocean were my ink and I were able to. Dry it out and I were and all the sky were my parchment. And I were able to fill it up. I would still not come close to describing accurately the majesty of the holiness of God. And yet here, David commands us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for us to give praise to God for this thing. Praise God for his glory and his strength. Praise God for the glory that is due his name. So if, if we were even just going to try. What things has God done that have shown us that he is glorious? Well, first off, he made us. We just go all the way back to Genesis and just kind of start walking through. He made us. And we could spend weeks reveling in the majestic creative power of God. Funny story has been told in the past that atheist was met up by God. Stop being an atheist, by the way, in that moment. And the atheist said, you know, I haven't believed in you because I just didn't think you were all that great. And he said, I'll tell you what, we'll have a little contest to see who's the greatest. Let's have a person making contest. 
This atheist happened to be a world-famous geneticist, understood cloning, and he was like, oh, excellent, excellent, yes, I will have a person-making contest. God said, but listen, we're going to do it the way I did it. You have to start with dirt. Atheists understood that there was cells and invisible things that you couldn't see except under the microscope there. He knew he would have the material he needed to work with. He said, perfect, we'll start with dirt. So God said, all right, well, let's begin. So the atheist bends down. He begins to scoop up large piles of dirt. And God said, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. get your own dirt. <laughs> we can't even begin to scratch the surface of the majesty of the glory of God in creation. There was nothing. Nothing. And if we take Genesis 1 seriously, the something that eventually was there was in chaotic distress and disorder and dark and wild and untamed. And God has made this great order that we know and we see the very allowance of life on our planet is because God has structured it to be this way. And and we could spend all morning walking through the Bible verse by verse, seeing the unbelievable majesty of God. But friends, we still wouldn't come to the end of it. So what does David say here at the end of verse two for us to do? When we're thinking about the glory of God, he tells us to worship the Lord in holy array. I I do not possess holy array. I don't. In the Old Testament, there was a picture of the high priest on the Day of Atonement having his garments made holy by sanctifying them through sacrifice and cleansing ritual so that that one time a year he could go into the very presence of the glory of God on earth and make the greatest sacrifice in the sacrificial system, the sacrifice of atonement for the entire nation. That sacrifice that the very first time it was offered, offered God himself through his fire down from heaven to consume it. That sacrifice that eventually in the history of the Jewish people, they would tie a rope to the foot of the high priest in case he went in an unworthy way and they could drag his dead body out from the presence of God. It's really the only picture of holy array that we meaningfully have in the scripture. And David commands all of God's people when they come face to face with the majesty and the glory of God to worship him in holy array. And I do not have that. Unless I find myself clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. Thank God, for the righteousness of Jesus. Because, friend, what was the great warning in the Old Testament? Moses, what was his request? I want to see your face. My face you cannot see. It'll consume you. You'll die. What is the flip in the New Testament for those who are clothed in Christ? And we shall see him face to face. And he will wipe every tear from our eyes. And he will seat us in heavenly places. He will place us on a throne with Christ. He will put a crown of glory on our heads that we share as co-heirs with Jesus. This is madness. It sounds blasphemous, but it is so true from the word. We, because of Jesus, get to share in the glory of God. A glory that we can't even verbalize because it's so great. And yet it's part of the gift of salvation that is being given to us. Not because of what we've done and not because of who we are, but because of what he's done and because of who he is. 
worship the Lord. Friends, this morning, did you come this morning clothed in the righteousness of Christ? To give glory, to give praise to the mighty name of the Most High God. Because, friend, let me fill you in this morning. You can't worship God rightly with your own mouth. It must be the mouth of Jesus. And you can't raise holy hands up to God with your own hands. They must be the hands of Jesus. And you not, cannot worship God in holy array. It must be the righteous robes of Jesus. And how do we know this? How is this true to us? Well, look what happens when you get to verse 3. There's a declaration about the voice of God. From verses 3 through 9, David just goes on a tangent about the voice of God. And friends, I know that some people get bothered about my interpretive grid. I know some people get bothered that I teach and preach that Christ is in all and through all and above all and is the point of every scripture that the old is a type and shadow fulfilled in the new of the glory of Christ and that you don't understand the New Testament through the Old Testament. You understand the Old Testament through the New Testament for Christ has declared that he is the fulfillment of it all. And so when I read something in a psalm where it talks about the voice of God, all that resonates in my ears is John declaring Jesus to be the word of God. And so I'm taking verses 3 through 9 as a declaration of the glory of Jesus Christ. Notice, if you will, the quality of this voice. The expression of the beauty and the splendor of the Lord Jesus Christ seen in verses 3 through 9. The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. If your mind were to go there, you should consider the way that Jesus' voice is described in the glory seen around the throne in John's revelation. It's described almost exactly the same way in Revelation chapter 1 verse 15. That from that throne... That throne that's almost hard to look at. It's so bright and glows and so beautiful and like Jasper and all the different things that it names. It says, and from that throne came a thundering voice like the sound of many waters. And it was Jesus speaking. Just prior to that, John heard a voice and he saw a vision and he turned to look and he saw the glorified Christ. And he said, I fell down as a man dead before him. Why? Because you can't see the face of the Lord and live. Oh, but friend, what did the Lord Jesus Christ do for John in that moment? He came to him. He touched him. He told him that he was welcome there. And he let him stand and look and see. Moses never got it because the law doesn't get you there. It's only the grace of Jesus Christ. The law does not deliver you from your leprosy, but the touch of Jesus Christ does. And so here we have this thundering voice of Jesus. And it says here that the voice of the Lord is powerful. That means it has ability. God spoke Everything into existence. If you run through the creation stories of Genesis 1 and 2, you see the power of the voice of God. When you shift over to Colossians and to Philippians and to other passages in the New Testament, we see that that creative voice of God is in fact the voice of Jesus because he is the God-man, second person of the Trinity, active in creation itself. For by him and through him have all things been made that have been made. Is powerful. Power here indicates ability. God's voice is able. Jesus Christ is able. Able to do what? We don't have time. I don't have enough seconds in my life to list out everything. What is it, what is it that Jesus can't do? That's a much easier list for us to get through. By the way, there are a couple of things on that list. He can't lie. 
He can't know of, no, of any other God besides himself. There's no other name given among men whereby you must be saved, but at the name of Christ. You know, super sure. I think we're done. Actually, I think that's it. What is Christ able to do? He's able to create. He's able to sustain. He's able to overcome. He's able to save a wretch like me. And I don't know how your life has been. But I marvel regularly at the miracle that he saved someone like me. When I read the story of Jacob and Esau and it says, Jacob, I have loved Esau, I have hated. I do not marvel that God hated Esau. He was a scoundrel. I marvel that God loved Jacob. He was worse than his brother. And then I look at my life and I understand how marvelous that grace is. How incredible it is. What is it that this powerful voice can do? The Lord is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. But not only is this voice capable, not only is it powerful, but notice the next thing in verse four. This voice of the Lord is majestic. This word majestic is very interesting. We, we typically apply it to kings and royalty, and we should. But it carries with it the idea of something being of the best possible quality. The best possible quality. The voice of the Lord... Jesus Christ is the best possible quality. Friend, let, let, that, let that settle in your mind and heart for just a moment. When you're going through something, you're facing a difficulty, you're struggling, you're straining, life is hard. The scripture makes it very clear that we should seek counsel, wise counsel. That's a good thing. I will never discourage that. But do you know what voice you should listen to above all others? The one with the best quality. And so many of us pursue the counsels of men and women. Waiting to hear what we want to hear rather than what we need to hear. And Jesus will always say that which is of the best quality. It doesn't mean that we'll like it. It just means it's what's best for us. His voice is majestic. And friends, there's been piles of times in my life where I'm just stomping through life, stomping through life, just sure of myself, sure of my perspective, sure of my views, sure of what's going on in my world. And then I hear the voice of Jesus and he says very plainly to me, you are being an idolater. But I'm preaching you. No. You're preaching yourself and putting me on top of it. Okay. Okay. His voice is majestic. It's always the best. But friends, not only is his voice powerful, it has ability to accomplish things. Not only is his voice majestic, but his voice also brings to us judgment. In here, it mentions several different things that are expressions of judgment. The breaking of the cedars in verse 5. Breaking them into pieces from the cedars of Lebanon. This picture later of the flames of fire that come out and the shaking of the wilderness. These are all Old Testament pictures of judgment. Jesus's voice is a voice of power. Jesus's voice is a voice of high quality. But Jesus's voice is also the voice of judgment. We know more about God's condemnation of sin from the words of Jesus than we do anywhere else in the scripture. I love it when people say, oh, if we could just be like Jesus, meek and lowly and mild. It's like you didn't read about Jesus that I've read about in the Bible. He has serious stuff to say about sin and about rebellion and about salvation 
and about judgment. His voice causes things to be crushed under the weight. Why? Because it's a powerful, majestic voice. When the Israelites heard the thundering from the mountain, when Moses received the law. And what is the law? The law is not to save. It's so clear in the Old and the New Testament. The law is not to save. The law is to show you your sin. It's a type of judgment. To point you to a needed Savior. And so they heard this thundering from the mountain. Why did they hear this thundering from the mountain? Because that is a picture of judgment. The judgment voice of God. I'm giving you the law and it will crush you under the weight of your own sin. They heard this thundering voice. And what did they say? We don't want God to speak to us, Moses. You go find out what he has to say and you come let us know. We can't handle this Kind of voice from God. Because no human can stand in the judgment of the Lord. Not only is this voice, this picture of Jesus powerful and majestic and full of judgment. But friend, dear friend, please hear me this morning. This voice, this Jesus, this word of God is joy to those who have received God's grace. Notice what it says here in verse six. I love this. He makes Lebanon. Now, remember, that's where they just broke all the cedars to pieces. There was judgment there. Next verse. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf. Syrian like a young wild ox. Verse nine. The voice of the Lord makes the deer to calve. We'll get to that in a moment. But there's this joy. The little happy animal skipping through the field. Unconcerned about anything. Not worried about any danger. Living life freely and to the fullest. Some of you have experienced this. The first time a kid is big enough. To go and enjoy the playground at the park. And they almost don't know what to do or where to go. Like It's just this erratic running around, touching things they should be playing on. But they're not real sure if they should be playing on them or not. Because look at all this amazing stuff. There's a flailing of arms and a lot of high-pitched squealing. And that's just dad. And then the kids are doing the same kind of thing, you know. There's just this joy and this delight and this freedom. And there's no fear. There's no fear of what's going on. There's no concern about what's happening. No one's afraid about falling off of any of the stuff and getting hurt and getting sunburned. And are there bad, creepy people hiding in the trees just on the outskirts of the... No, they're just, just joy. There's this safe feeling. Mom and dad have brought me to this wonderful place and I just need to skip around and have a big time. The voice of the Lord for those who are in the grace of God... It's like that. It's like the calf that skips, the young wild ox that jumps. This, 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 there's joy in the voice of the Lord for those who know him. Friends, in my lost condition, I hated everything about Jesus. Everything. I did not want To hear it. Because all I heard was thunder. All I heard was thunder. I, like the Israelites, I do not want that voice speaking to me. And then God removed my heart of stone. And he replaced it with a heart of flesh. And he drew me into himself. And he gave me a new name. And he gave me life in place of death. And he gave me whole cleansing in place of my spiritual leprosy. And he gave me the ability to speak in place of my muteness. And to hear in place of my deafness. And to see in place of my blindness. And to walk and to run and to jump in place of my lameness. And he took my dirty rags off of me. And he clothed me with the very righteousness of his son Jesus and now now when I hear his voice it is joy 
I want to hear that voice as much as I can. Why? Because of the last metaphor that's used in this in verse 9. This voice, this Jesus is life giving. The voice of the Lord makes the deer to calve. Friend, hear me this morning. There is not one life gained or lost in God's world that Jesus is not ultimately responsible for. That's glory. That's glory. I can't do that. I can't make alive and bring down to death. I can't do that. I really don't have that power. Everything that lives and moves and has its being is because of Jesus Christ. Everything. 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 There is not one iota of existence in this universe that is not finding its source of life from the glorious, majestic power of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ himself. It's glory. And you know the ramifications of that are huge. Me and my feeble, finite humanness cannot even begin to scratch the surface of understanding the power of such glory. And yet, for reasons that I do not understand or comprehend, he and his sovereign power has chosen To give me life. And to speak to me with joy rather than judgment. And so what is the response of this? Everything. Listen to this. I love this. I love this. And in his temple... Everything says glory. Well, duh, yeah. You want a reference point? The whole book of Revelation. Whole book of Revelation. And and just to kind of be tongue in cheek a little bit. If you happen to be a person here who gets frustrated with worship songs that are only about seven to ten words long and repeat themselves over and over and over again, don't sign up to be those angel dudes flying around the throne who've sang that same song forever and it's got like 14 words in it. Like, I really do wonder sometimes, like, the angelic response in heaven when we say crazy things like that in our worship wars. You know, if you really want to have a good, Miss Paulette, if you really want to have a good, deep, meaningful worship song, it's got to have big verses and big movements. You can't just do one of these little praise things. It says the same chorus. Over, you know, one of the seven elevens. That's what one of my professors used to call them. Seven words you say 11 times over and over and over again. I like think that the guys covering their eyes and their feet and flying around the throne. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Who, like, I wonder if they pause for like one brief second and go, What? Everything in the temple. Do you know what the one word to the one song that they sing over and over and over and over again is? Glory! Because he's majestic. And he's powerful. And he's amazing. And there's no other word that they can come up with. They have so much they want to say. And human language fails them. So they just scream out, Glory! 
Amen. Thank you. Mouths of children, grown-ups, please catch up. Glory. And why is that? Why is that? Verses 10 and 11. Because the Lord is king. Jesus is the king. He is not just the king. He is the king of kings. He is the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. There is nothing outside of the scope of his glorious kingdom. He reigns supreme in every way. Nothing, no one, no person, no power comes anywhere close to rivaling him as the undefeated, undisputed heavyweight champion of the universe. He has never been defeated. He will never be defeated. And he gives us a share in his victory. The Lord sat as king at the flood. Mm. When you read the flood story. And you read the New Testament commentary on the flood story. Because it's referenced a few times in the New Testament. God brings his ferocious, unparalleled judgment against sin. And in his merciful compassion, takes a family, basically sticks them in a coffin. You ever seen a like actual build of what the ark looked like? A coffin. And protects them from death and judgment and destruction. He closes them in. He lets them out. He gives them life. The scripture makes it super clear. That the ark built by Noah is a type and kind of Jesus himself. God took Noah's family and put them in Christ. And gave them life. He sat as king at the flood. I bring both judgment and salvation. And he is king forever. Yes, the Lord sits as king forever. Do you know why the Davidic covenant till promise has not failed and is not false? Some of the greatest Enemies of the Christian faith go to the Davidic promise and they say, look, see, the whole system's busted because he said to David, somebody from your line is going to sit on the throne forever. And it was just two of y'all. It was you and Solomon. And then everybody else, nobody's on the throne anymore, even still to this day. Clearly, God lied to you. Clearly, this whole thing is a sham. Why would you keep believing in such nonsense? Because, friend, the person who was going to come from David's line has always been sitting on the throne. He sat on the throne before David was born. He was sitting on the throne when the kingdom was torn from the line of Solomon and civil war broke out. And he remains on the throne to this day. That's what forever means. It's always been this way. Jesus has always been king. Scripture makes it very clear that Jesus is the same yesterday, today and forever. Guess what? He didn't become king. He has always been king. And then notice what he does for us. This is so magnificent. In all of this declaration of the glory of Christ. Notice what the Lord does for us. This is so good. The Lord will give strength to his people. In the, in the midst of this picture of how glorious God is, I suddenly feel very small and I suddenly feel very weak. I suddenly feel very insignificant. 
I suddenly feel like my life actually doesn't matter. I feel like we sang earlier, rather than feeling both worth and unworthiness, all I'm feeling is unworthiness. Because I do not compare to the glory of this majestic king. And so what does he do for me? What does he do for you, dear brother or sister in Christ? The Lord will give strength to his people. There's a lot of things that this can mean. The chief thing that it does mean, undebatable, undisputable, he will give you through his Holy Spirit the capacity to properly bear his image in the world. Friend, that's what you've been made for. That's what the fall wrecked. Was our capacity to properly bear God's image. We, like the moon, what it does with the sun, we were made to reflect the glory of God. I know everybody in here is not in astronomy like I am, but just bear with me for a second. The reason why we all kind of get in awe of one of those big full moon nights is because the moon is doing in that moment what it was made to do, which is reflect the glory of the sun in the darkness. When we're in a new moon cycle and we see no light from the moon, it's acting like we are in our sin and our rebellion apart from being in Christ. We're supposed to reflect the glory of God, but we don't. And so what does the Lord do? He gives us the strength through the spirit and the grace in Christ to reflect his glory. That's what he does for us. You say, man, that that's kind of stressful. Well, look at what else he gives you. Look what else he gives me. The Lord will bless his people. Now, you've already read it. Don't, no cheat sheets. If you're able to just fill in one thing that you wanted the Lord to bless you with. What would it be for a whole lot of us? It wouldn't be what's on this piece of paper. It would not be peace. It'd be a whole bunch of other stuff before it was peace. The Lord will bless his people with peace. Now, you don't have to raise your hand. I'm going to raise my hand. I do not regularly live in a state of peace in my life. I get stressed out about the brokenness of me and this world all the time. Sometimes it is overwhelming. Things are not how they ought to be. And no matter how hard I try, I can't make them the way that they ought to be. And every day I wake up and there's something about this broken world that causes me stress. Sadly, every day that I wake up, I'm usually a participant in those broken, stressful things because of my own continued love for my sin. And I know it's not supposed to be like this. I know that the Lord is redeeming a people to himself. And that one day there will be a full redemption of all things. The scripture says this very plainly. But we're not there yet. That's not where I live day to day. When family members are sick. When relationships are broken. When... Economic systems are shutting down when there's wars and rumors of wars and there's famine and there's outbreak and there's pestilence and all the other things that the scripture lists that people will continue to go through till the end. And there's sorrow and there's depression and there's anxiety and there's 
pain. This is what flavors my mouth most of the time. And it shouldn't. Because the Lord will bless his people with peace. So I'm just going to go ahead and call everybody out on the carpet because I I told you you didn't have to raise your hand. But I know for the most part, everybody in the room, if you're super honest about it, you just don't live like these uh, uh, young wild oxes and the skipping calf just happily bouncing through life. Just at peace with everything, just waiting for your turn on the monkey bars. This this isn't what most of us experience. Most of you, like me, struggle with the distressing reality of this broken life. Why do we do that? We do it, friend. I'm just going to go ahead and say it. This This is the hardest part of the sermon. We do it because we haven't really taken the time to embrace the full reality of the glory of this God. Why did the psalmist David spend all this time talking about how glorious the Lord is in Christ for us before he told us that he would give us peace? Because the only way that we're going to find peace is to baptize ourselves, marinate ourselves, revel ourselves in the glory of Christ. And until Christ has the proper exalted place in my heart and in my mind, everything else around me will find a place of idolatry on a pedestal and Christ will be pushed to the side. He will not receive the worthy place in my life. And I will look at the waves and I will look at the storm rather than keeping my eyes on the Savior to whom I am walking on that treacherous sea, just like Peter did. And when the waves capsize me and the sea begins to take me, I will have to cry out again as I always do. Lord, save me. And he, in his gracious kindness, will pull me up like he always does. And he'll throw me onto the boat and the storm will stop. And he'll say, why did you have so little faith? And just like those men on the boat that day who marveled at him being the Lord over the sea. I too will marvel at his glory for a moment and then my wretched, sinful, broken mind will forget and I will again begin looking at the circumstances of my life rather than the creator of the circumstances and Christ's glory will dim. Christ's glory will diminish. Not because his glory has dimmed, not because his glory has diminished, but because I have turned my focus from looking at the fullness of the sun to the crevices of the moon. That though glorious at night is not the full glory of the sun and the brightness of the day. Friends, we do not experience the peace that we ought to experience. Because we Turn our eyes blindly to the glory of Christ. And I'm guilty. I'm guilty. Every problem that I face in life, that I give weight to, that I allow to cause me to be anxious That I allow to cause me to worry and to fear all the things that the scriptures say. Don't be as a believer. I give room to the glory of the brokenness of this world. And that must take place of the glory of Christ. And it is in these moments that I do not experience Peace, friends, peace is not something that I have to find. Peace is not something that I have to search for. Peace is not something that I have to dig up and muster. Peace is a gift 
from God that He has already given through Christ. And I take that gift and I set it to the side and I anxiously wring my hands before heaven, questioning the goodness of God, wondering why He won't give me peace. And He already has. And that peace comes from hearing this majestic, splendid voice of Jesus. Because he is the glory of God. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you for challenging psalms like this one. Father, I confess in my humanness, I'm still not sure what I said. And I know these people here today are not sure what they've heard. Because your glory is inexhaustible. You are a majestic above all things. And your son, Jesus Christ, is the exact imprint and representation of your majesty and your glory. And he is powerful. And he's of the best quality. And his voice is a voice of both judgment and joy. And one that gives life. Father, all things everywhere are to cry out to your name. The name of your son, the name of your spirit. Triune God, three in one. The chorus of glory. Father, forgive us. When we do not. There are so many things that we give glory to that are not your son. Forgive us. Father, you have promised both strength, the ability to be as we ought to be. And peace. A life not marked by anxiety and fear and striving. But a life marked by contentment as we rest in your glory. Father, give us a vision of Christ that is overwhelming. That causes all other circumstances of our life to Pale in comparison. And Father, we thank you that by your grace and for your glory, you will graciously fulfill the promises that you've made to us of strength and peace because you are a kind, compassionate, promise-keeping God. And the answer to all of the promises that you have made are yes in Christ And we thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen. I invite you to stand as we sing a song of response together.